In our studios this evening, a gentleman who, well, once a year, I guess, graces this table. It's kind of a hands-across-the-ether show of That's a good camaraderie. Word. I like the word grace. Grace? Grace and elegance. Grace oh. and elegance. That's right. That is a vo voice known to millions. Fantastic uh, tap-dancing combo. Yes. Used to work the Orpheum circuit. Grace and elegance. Terrific. <laughs> that is a voice known to at least two or three New Yorkers. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and that is the voice of Gene Shepard. Yes, I'm known very well to my accountant, and I'm known to a used car dealer up in Queens. They know me well. <laughs> and uh, he is our guest this evening. Very good. And before we begin, we have some commercial words. Would you turn the earphones down? They seem to be making all kinds of noise. Oh, that's my head. Is it really? It rattles. It's got a bad cone. <laughs> we'll begin in just a few moments. News item to mm. begin with this evening. Yeah, good. Al Goldstein, who is the current interview in, in Playboy magazine and is the editor of Screw magazine, mm -hmm. in that interview in Playboy magazine, said some rather interesting things about his wife. <laughs> he did? About their sex life. <laughs> and she is now suing Playboy magazine for an as yet undisclosed amount uh, for invasion of privacy. Meanwhile, Al Goldstein is going to be working as a friend of the court for Playboy magazine. How do you work as a friend of the court? I didn't know that courts had friends. Now, how do you go home every evening and have somebody who's suing somebody who interviewed you, and you're defending the people who interviewed you? Well, that in itself is a comment on Al's sex life. It must be. <laughs> How's it been going, Gene? Very fine. You know, it's... Uh, I hadn't seen the current issue, you know. I'm, I'm still listed on the uh, masthead as a contributing editor, but I, I get the magazine. I'd say maybe three, four months after the, after the uh, guys that get it at the newsstand get it. Why is that? I don't know. That brown wrapper they send it to me and has a code on it or something. It's got a delay on it. And uh, I'm, I'm getting late 1973 magazines now in the mail. You're being to see, uh, read articles that you didn't know you wrote. Yes, it's, uh, it's like a tour through instant nostalgia. I'm but always... how often do you write for them now? Well, I'm, I'm uh, working on a couple of pieces right now. I, I've kind of laid off uh, writing for Playboy for about the last, uh, oh, possibly year, because I was working on a book out. Yeah. And I, I just uh, didn't want to expend too much energy and... And uh, I just didn't didn't feel it right then at that point. Well, see, last time we talked to you, you had a new book. Yeah. Right, Wanda Hickey? Correct. Well, actually, the last one that I think that you and I talked about was the Ferrari in the bedroom. Right, right, right. But uh, I've been uh, trying to get my head together to finish a book that I've been working on off and on for about four years about the Army. Uh, it's a novel of Army life. And uh, parts of it appeared in Playboy already, and I... I uh, finally said, well, I've got to really get this thing out of the way because uh, my publisher's been griping about it and, and uh, he's been making bad noises and since they gave me an advance, which I already spent, uh, I figured I'd better do it. When do you, when do you write? All night. Usually at night? I, always at night. I never write in the daytime. I, I usually write from... Oh, I start writing about... Uh, after Roger Grinsby goes off. It's a bad time to start writing. Well, he starts Roger me off. Grinsby. No, no, he starts me off. That 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 face that looks uh, like it should be on a pewter mug. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> it looks a little like a pewter, pewter mug. mug so yes, nice, yeah. Yeah. And he, he goes off and with that sardonic smirk. And, and uh, on comes uh, 
a bad mystery. I say, well, the time has come for me to start working, and I I go to work then. I usually work till well, sometimes five, six in the morning. I got to tell a story about Jane. It's very funny. One night, I go over to Earl Dowd's house, and you're there finishing yep. up dinner sitting around the table doing what Gene does best, telling stories. <laughs> and Gene goes into a story, must have taken you a half hour to tell. And uh, we're all talking and everything. And all of a sudden we hear something out on the balcony, some gunshots. Or something. Yeah, there was a wild gunshots. And we went out to the balcony and, and started looking. It's about 10 stories up or better. How, how high is that? 27 stories. 27 stories? Yeah. 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 We figured we were above the gunshots. Yeah, they couldn't. Have, we'd only get the high trajectory shots up there. Right, right. Right. And I'm getting tired of standing out there listening to gunshots. <laughs> that show what, it shows how excited I get about things like that. And I go and I figure, what should I do? Oh, I'll turn on the television set and turn on Joe Franklin. And I turn on Joe Franklin. And who do you suppose is his guest? Gene Shepard. You I couldn't get away from you that evening. <laughs> yeah, it goes like that. It goes in cycles. I, uh, I, 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 it's funny. Uh, the other day, it, it just, you just have to bring up Joe. You, you know Joe, don't you? I'm doing a show next week. Oh, you, ha you have to do a show at least once a year. It's like a polio shot. It's a, yeah, that's right. You have to renew it. And he's a great guy. I like yeah. Joe. There was a guy on the other night. I, I hate to say it, but there was a guy who, whose chief claim to fame was that he did an imitation of Joe Franklin. And that uh, wasn't Marshall Efron. No, no, it wasn't Marshall. Marshall does a marvelous imitation of Joe. Well, I haven't seen Marshall do it, but I saw this guy do it. And, and uh, we're all sitting there, and Joe introduces him as a guy that does this Joe Franklin imitation. So he starts to do the Joe Franklin imitation. And Joe's looking at him, see? And you know Joe, one thing about Joe, he's got a mind that Damon Runyon would have bottled at, you know. <laughs> he, 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 comes up, he does, That's he comes it, up yeah. with lines like, a, you know, horse face hair, he couldn't conceivably have come up, great lines. And, 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 and Joe has a remarkable grasp of truth, he really does, in, in an elliptical way. So Joe is sitting there looking at this guy doing his Joe Franklin imitation, there's a pregnant pause after he finishes it. And Joe says, you know, I'm just looking at you. The guy says, yes. He says, I've come to a conclusion. Either you're rotten or I am. <laughs> the, guy, the guy sort of staggers back. <laughs> How was his imitation? Oh, uh, I, I, if I hadn't known it was uh, he was doing Joe Franklin, I wouldn't guess. Really no, no. Well, Joe is kind of an easy imitation to do. Well, yeah, except for the old times. Let me tell you about the imitation. Time, panels of panels. Imitations yeah. are very strange. Uh, I've done. I do a lot of stuff in my stage work. I rarely do this on the air. I do never you do imitations. Oh yeah, all the time. But my well, we ought to go through our repertoire. Then. Well, I don't do the kind of imitations that. See, my most of my imitations are visual. Mm -hmm. Alex, I do. I, I do walks and stuff. For example, uh, one of the guys I do. Uh, I do Harry Reasoner. <laughs> uh, uh, I do. I really do. I do Harry Reisner, and I do. I do a, a, a moment, and uh, when Harry Reisner meets Eric Severi, and the two of them are having this high-level conversation, and in comes Jerry of JGE, and uh, I do, uh, you know, JGE commercials. Right. I do him, and I do. Uh, I, I like to do commercials too. Uh, I do, for example, the uh, the lady plumber getting rid of a tea stain one of my big things and uh, of course these are very uncommercial uh, commercial uh, imitations you, all, all, all people have to do presidents I mean if you don't do a president you're not really with it and I'll tell you the secret I do McKinley you do? yeah he's a, he's a good one uh, it's that tick of course yeah right uh, you have to get that down before you well it's, it's important that was his whole world <laughs> but uh, 
you know, it was a funny thing about, about imitations, and, and I saw it when I was watching this guy work, that very few imitations, I don't care how good the guy is, David Fry, you name it, any of them, they, they really fall flat when the real guy is there at the time they're doing the imitation. You really realize that, that it's just the power of suggestion he's doing with you. That's really what it's all about. Yeah. I mean, I do, I do a Joe Franklin, and people say, oh, it's very funny. It's, you know, that's Joe, but it, I'm not doing his voice. No, if, his if Joe were there, uh, it, right. wouldn't, it wouldn't work. Oh, I could never, for instance, if, uh, if I went on Joe's show and he said, do your imitation of me. I could never do it in front of Joe. You would be smart not to. <laughs> the truth would come out that you don't do even a good job, frankly. Right. You know? right. So I, I uh, it, it's all it's all done by suggestion, and you don't even. Well, I've heard at least two or three different versions of what Ed Sullivan sounds like, and they all sound like Ed Sullivan. There was a Will Jordan Ed Sullivan. There yeah. was a, I believe, a Rich Little Ed Sullivan. I mean, and they were all different. They were. And all of course, different. all of them were different from Ed Sullivan. Right. Who did a totally different uh, imitation, uh, imitation of himself. Exactly. Yeah. I'm going to take a break for the news. Oh, that's nice. When we come back, we have lots of time I to love talk news. to Shep. So exciting. Isn't it, though? Mm. <laughs> Pardon me? That seems to be what's in the news today. Pardon me. Lovely, plush studios of WPLJ in New York. Very elegant. You see our wall of uh, fame back there? It's very know? nice, yes. Um, I, uh, a lot of meaningless us. pictures of... <laughs> Meaningless people. A lot of erotica in us in. Very, very, very. I see uh, Rivera up there. Geraldo. Yeah, well, I don't. Uh, I have been very unkind to Mr. Rivera. Oh, yeah? In my comments about him. And uh, I don't know whether he actually signed that thing, but that wound up in my studio one day. Well, he has a, a notable ego. I was at a party tonight. At one of those, those parties that everybody reads about in Susie mm. for Stevie Wonder which Mick Jagger was supposed to be there, Andy Warhol was there. I think they pay Warhol now to show up at these things. Well, how much is it worth to you for me to show up? You know? I think Warhol is really a, uh, a uh, franchise. I think there yeah. are eight or nine of them that work parties. Yeah, right. Uh, there's one in Detroit, yeah. one in San Francisco. And uh, uh, Rivera was there, and I was amazed how many people were like, at different tables saying, oh, that's so-and-so, mm, that's so-and-so. He used to be a hero here in New York, and now for some reason there's a very negative attitude about Geraldo Rivera, which doesn't disappoint me in the least because I didn't <laughs> like him the first time I met him. Yeah. Well, uh, you can tell that almost, uh, Alex, the, the, the real barometer of a guy's success, though, in this town is uh, you can tell he's starting to make it when people start making bad remarks about you. Yeah. This town. Well, that happened the day I walked in town, Gene. Well, that was uh, for another reason. Uh, <laughs> actually, it's true. You know, I, 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 it, it, you could almost tell the, you could almost tell the, uh, it's like a graph. Yeah. Uh, I can remember. I can't imagine anybody saying anything bad about you, Gene. Oh, well, it's uh, only the audience. Do they say, bad, do they say bad things about you? Oh, yeah, I've heard all kinds what, of things. What kind of things have you heard bad about you? That people have said that you were no good because blah, 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 blah. Um, well, I, it, it comes out in curious ways. One night I, I was doing a commercial. I was in a studio, and the guy came in who was one of the account executives. And uh, he says, you know, he said, uh, so I'm really, really uh, out on a limb. He said, and I'm pleased to meet you. He said, I'm out on a limb, you know, with you. And I said, why? So he says, well, you know, he said, you're kind of tough to work with. And I said, tough to work with? What did I do, you know? He says, well, you know how it is. And he walked into the control room. 
And there I was, you know, sitting there. Jeez, I'm tough to work with, you know. And I didn't know. <laughs> I kind of felt good about that in a way, you know. I, I like that uh, that feeling that, you know, it's like King Kong is tough to work with. Mm -hmm. But uh, it, it's funny about this town. I can remember a few years back, believe it or not, before, uh, you know, almost universally today, people badmouth Johnny Carson. Well... They do, yeah. Really? Oh, sure. They, uh, your little digs about Carson and magazines and uh, stories about him and in the business. And, and uh, they always say that he's cold and he's... He's, uh, he's from the Midwest. What do they personal And, and uh, well, so is Kurt Vonnegut. But... Uh, you I find him cold and impersonal. <laughs> well, so am I from the Midwest. <laughs> but it, it, it's a funny thing, though, about him... All of a sudden, when he made it, when he really made it big on the t on the Tonight Show, he that you begin to hear that stuff. Well, prior to that point, everyone was always saying, "When is Johnny Carson going to get the break?" And he's so great on that lousy quiz show in the morning. You know, there's a guy that really should do it. And then overnight, as soon as he made it, you started to hear the other thing. Boy, he's really terrible. Well, look at the Yankees uh, today now. Everybody, already now, all the people are starting, you, the, the, the Yankee haters are coming out from under rocks all over the place. <laughs> Why? Were they saying that two years ago when they weren't making it? No, now all of a sudden they're, they're charging for the pennant. And, and uh, Larry Merchant's getting angry. Various sports writers are getting bugged. The Yankees are doing it again. I remember when I came to New York, I stayed at some friend's place, and the first thing I did was turn on the radio, first to hear the radio station that I was going to be working for. Where was that? Was the first one. WMCA. Mm -hmm. And I listened to Barry Gray. And then I was switching around or, uh, the dial, either before Barry or during Barry or whatever, and I come across Gene Shepard. And I hear this guy telling a story that's going on now for a half hour. And I couldn't believe I said, does this guy do this every night? I mean, I'd heard the name Gene Shepard, you know, because I'd seen it in Playboy magazine and so on and so forth. But I never heard you. And I said, that's unbelievable that a man can sit there and tell a story for 45 minutes. Now, five years later, I found myself about four weeks ago telling a story that took 45 minutes to tell. Well, well I bet at that, at that point, it was quite remarkable. All good stories. See, there's a difference between a story and a joke. And, and I think most Americans are tuned to jokes or anecdotes, you know, a la Sam Levinson. Or they, uh, TV has made us think that, that, a, that a comic should make his point in maybe four or five milliseconds mm -hmm. before the elbow commercial. And uh, the one-liner. And it's, it's, in a sense, it's killed the whole, uh, I suppose you might say, the whole art form of storytelling, which is a really highly developed art form uh, and very traditional in Europe and, and uh, very honored in most parts of the world. But here, it's looked upon as an oddity. And as a storyteller, uh, you know, I, did you ever know Lenny at all, Lenny Bruce? I never knew him personally. Well, did you ever, you ever see him work? Yeah. Well, now, nobody seemed to say that about Lenny, and I don't know why. Lenny would tell many times. Lenny he was a storyteller. He would tell a story that would go on for an hour. Uh, and I suppose he, he got uh, occasional comments like that, but I guess we're not used to that on the radio. Now, when I do a story in clubs, and I work a lot at clubs, Alex, and, and before I, I uh, in fact, came... Uh, did a lot of radio and television work in New York. I worked mostly clubs. In fact, I was down at a uh, one of the first jobs I ever had in New York was down at a club 
on 32nd Street and Madison Avenue in a hotel there called Hotel Duane. Mm -hmm. And it was, a, at that time, it was a very kind of a chic club. It was called Down in the Depths. And uh, at that same club, uh, Mike and Elaine were working. They had just left there. Mm -hmm. And uh, Milt Kamen was on the same bill. And, and uh, I worked, did, you know, worked in clubs. And that's where most of my work has come out of. Well, curiously enough, I never heard that from people in clubs. It's only when I started to do the uh, tell stories on, on the radio, which uh, is much the same technique, except I do a lot more visual, of course, in clubs and on yeah. stage. Uh, people say, gee, you know, it's fantastic you tell a story and it takes 45 minutes to tell. But it's really not one story, if you listen carefully. But what I do is, is set up a premise. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think all good nightclub acts should be based on a premise, not just, uh, I'm going to be doing 20 minutes right. of jokes. Uh, in other words, what's the premise of your act? What are you talking about? Uh, are you talking about the, uh, the seven deadly sins or evil, <laughs> whatever it might be? And I'll start out and I'll start telling a story, but I use the story as a hook upon which you can base many different other comments and little in gags and jokes about life right. until finally you come back at the end of the story, you conclude the whole thing, and that should be at the end of the show. Now we've learned Gene's trade secrets. Right. Thank you very much, Gene. Nice having you here. <laughs> Well, that's the way it goes. Yeah. But it takes it takes a long time to learn. Uh, the most difficult part of, of telling a story is it's like anything, any other form of acting. It's like it's like a, when an actor's on a on a stage doing a doing a, a soliloquy or a monologue, and which is essentially what I do. My work is mostly a soliloquy, not a monologue, which is quite different. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to learn pacing and 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 beat and tempo and you have to get yeah. variety in your language yeah. so that there's always a sense of tension in the audience is what you're going to say next and you keep that, that subtle variety and this is where the, where the uh, experience counts mm -hmm. and okay. what's happening here? what's happening here? Oh, we have a handing me a note alright, thank you goodbye <laughs> I love there's some people walking in and just give you a note yeah, right well Okay. Okay. Is it an important? No, it's not really an important. Uh, Most message. notes aren't, Alex. Hey, what's the music sheet in front of you there? Are you writing music these days? Yes, right. No, this is our this is our log. You have logs over there. Oh, but that looks more like uh, the score to somebody's. Uh, yeah. Well, they um, here they have this log. I, I, I've never really complained about this. And you see, this is run off on a computer. Yeah, I can see. Oh, yeah. Do you have a computer over at OR? We certainly do. He's managing the station now. Oh, I see. No, but do you have a, uh, do you have a computer that makes your logs? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, this thing, for some reason, the computer paper is gigantic. And it makes your real log. Look at that. Ours is written in Spanish or something. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah. And you keep it yourself. Yes. Oh, no, we have... Uh, well, you have a log keeper over there. Official people. That. Yeah, we Some guy sits there in all ruin. Picks off the time and commercials. Correct all. That's right. And uh, he, he, uh, he's uh, like the umpire in a ball game. His decisions are final. And, uh, <laughs> we, yeah, loggers, by the way, can sink guys' careers. I've known some loggers, you know, they love to write memos. But uh, he didn't do a commercial. He ran over with it. Does he also write down nasties, you may have said, and things like that? Uh, well, some do, some don't. Mm -hmm. uh, no, I never say any nasties, Alex. Have you ever been I say snidies. Have you ever have you ever told a story <laughs> that got you in trouble? No. 
Uh, 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 that's with amazing. With Westerns, yes. Uh, like the other night, uh, for example. It's not a matter of getting you in trouble. You, uh, almost every story you tell causes... Uh, uh, there's always one group of the audience that reads into the story uh, what you really put into it. In other words, uh, almost all my stories have an undercurrent. I don't just tell a, a story without an undercurrent of perhaps uh, eroticism or... or uh, you wouldn't deal an eroticism machine. Right. Well, you have to write you were a family show. Are you kidding? What kind of families do you live with? <laughs> Families hate my work. Uh, no, the, the classical family should know. You, you see, when you're outward, uh, when, you, when you're laying it on the line, in other words, a, a true pornographic movie doesn't offend anybody. It's there right there. You know what it is. It's pornographic. Mm. But it's the, it's the implied stuff that bothers people. When you, because then they begin to think that their head is sick. They hear this. And uh, the implication, in other words, implied things always cause yeah. people to be a little un uneasy. Uh, and I never, I never come right out and and uh, say for for good reason because I think I think literary values are lost mm -hmm. when people are too explicit. You really think so? I know so. Uh, that that the that. Uh, you can be explicit, but explicit in an imaginative way. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in, in short, uh, something bores me. Uh, when, when a guy will write an endless chapter uh, describing uh, sex in, uh, in, in, you might say, in the medical textbook anatomical detail, to me this is totally boring. Uh, now, other people don't find it so, mm -hmm. but I find it extremely boring because uh, we all know about it. I mean, it's like right. describing to me uh, intimately uh, how to put the cream in the coffee. I know how to do that. I don't, you know. So, what's new about it? So you think the hint rather than the exactly. Uh, but how come they're lining up for porn? Well, because there's a lot of people who have no sense of imagination. I'm, I'm not putting them down. I'm saying for myself. But do you think you could have explicit sex, say, in a movie, and still have it be quite literate? Yeah. Oh, yeah. As much as I'm embarking upon my film directing career soon, I've just been engaged by some people to direct a pornographic film. <laughs> I'd rather play in one. Well, but, you got uh, the part. <laughs> actually, but seriously, I, 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 I'm not... Because uh, this is an argument that goes on forever. Yeah. You know, people keep arguing this back and forth. But uh, wouldn't it kind of be like saying that if you were doing a love story, you really shouldn't have the people kiss, you should only hint at people kissing? There is a school of thought that says this is the most erotic of all writing, uh, and uh, because you can uh, you can imagine them doing all kinds of other things. Mm -hmm. You see that is not necessarily said. Uh, the mind is a fantastic theater. Unfortunately, not everybody's theater is open. <laughs> and, 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 and either that or the admission is too high. That's right. Uh, it's, it's a fact. Unfortunately, uh, uh, you have large numbers of people from very from birth uh, have not been trained or perhaps uh, their mind hasn't been opened up. I think many, many people, I th I, if you take a hundred people walking down the street, Alex, it is my guess that roughly, probably 65 out of them mm -hmm. have not had any flight of imagination worthy of the name, quite possibly since they were a, a very small child. Mm -hmm. And it's a sad thing. Uh, they, they live in a day-by-day 
moment-to-moment grubbing existence, no matter how high their job may be. They may be a, a president of a big concern or even an artist. Uh, and it's a sad, sad fact. Do you ever consider... so they like the yeah. explicit. Do you, do you ever consider yourself political on any level? Always. In fact, the other night, it depends on how you define politics. Well, I'm saying your chair is hitting the mic stand. Could you kind of move your chair over oh. a little bit? It's my bad knee. Wait a minute. All right. I think you have to move a little more. Hitting what mic stand? The, the mic stand, the boom is on. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, this thing. Oh, I see. How's that? I thought when I would come to something like Is eight, that okay? When I, when I was working in a small radio station, so we're on the other side of the railroad tracks in an old lumber office, I said, I can hardly wait till the day I go to work for a big network and there won't be all these problems of mics banging and... Oh, well... You'll never get out of that. Yeah. But anyway, what, what, you're, you're, you're talking about politics. Political. All right, now politics, most people think political means to lecture them. Yeah. To come on and say, X is a fink, Y is groovy. Uh, why is rotten? And this is a, this is a great. And, and these people aren't political at all. To me, they're, they're just partisan. Mm -hmm. But now, like, uh, let's take Watergate. All through Watergate, I was doing stories about uh, guilt. I was doing stories about being un, uh, about a character, uh, whatever the character I would create in the story, suddenly being discovered in in a fantastic moment of, of uh, revealing uh, guilt and the, the, the tremendous feelings that, that come out of this. Now, a lot of people wouldn't say that's politics because I didn't come out and specifically say Nixon. <laughs> uh, you have to tell them, this is Nixon, friends, okay? And uh, that's, uh, you, you take Jonathan Swift now. Swift never mentioned names. Swift's characters were all elliptical in Gulliver's Travels, but the people of the time could understand what he was talking about. And so it was a very political word. Well, it's so was quite, that's quite right. And, 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 and people who are tuned to, to what I'm doing recognize me as political. Do you but if you think Joan... See, if you're tuned to the kind of obvious things, say, like Joan Baez does right. as politics, you wouldn't understand my political thing. Because yeah. she wears buttons all over her telling you what she believes and stuff. Do you, do you, I mean, but do you ever, for instance, make your, your personal politics known? like where, for instance, politically you may stand. Well, I, I, I don't have a stand because I think that, that things vary constantly. I think any guy that says, I'm a lifelong X or a lifelong Y. Oh, I always maintain that. This is a guy that's not, uh, not you know, well, he's you, not staying got, with it. Yeah, you've definitely got to let the people know and let them realize that, uh, that you do have the ability and the subject to change. And that, uh, well, I'm basically radical, politically, radically left. There are a few things in which I could actually probably be considered conservative. Well, now, now the other day, give me an idea, Alex. I did, right after Nixon resigned, yeah. I did a piece about, uh, uh, it's, it's, I, I felt to myself, well, you know, since, since many listeners uh, have to be told what a story is about before they accept the fact that it's it's a story about a specific thing. I did a I did a piece about Nixon mm -hmm. arriving before the final ultimate great bar of justice. That the big curtain has closed on Nixon, and all of a sudden there's a, there's a tremendous uh, whirling scene, you know, and it's like a montage in a movie. And zap, there he is. He's standing before this enormous pearly desk, uh, infinitely high, thousands of miles high. And he's, just, first of all, he's astounded. It is actually the way it was, he, he was taught in Sunday school. There it is. There is and, and up on the top of this desk, looking down, is St. Peter. 
It's actually the way you, you know, we, we would be surprised to find it actually is that way. And St. Peter looks down and says, Richard Milhouse Nixon, you have arrived at the final bar of justice. The time has come to look at the great book and read your record and make our final decision as to how you shall spend all eternity. And Nixon says, before we do that, I want you to understand that it's undoubtedly in your record that I have received a full pardon. And St. Peter says, a pardon? One cannot pardon a sin. One can only pardon a crime. We are here to judge with sin. We're not dealing with crimes. Now, this whole scene built up of a colloquy between, I'm not going to tell you what happened, but it was a colloquy between Nixon and St. Peter, and I was making a point to the audience that it is, no matter what Ford did, it's impossible to pardon Nixon, ultimately. Nixon will always be guilty throughout all history. Very you see? Touching. Well, all right. See, most people would like to say, well, no, you have to put him in jail for a year. That shows he's really guilty. He says, no. The minute you do a thing, you're guilty. <laughs> and it's, it's whether or not people judge you guilty is immaterial. It's only one problem, Gene. Yeah. Gerald Ford thinks he's St. Peter. I guess if you'd like to ask Gene a question or something, you can give us a call at 541 What do you think of Alex Johnson? What do you think of Alex Johnson? Who's Alex Johnson? You don't know who Alex Johnson is. No, who's Alex Johnson? He's the guy that the Yankees picked up the other day for $20,000, and he hit a home run in his first game and won the ball game. Really? See, I don't follow that. You should. Well, I've never been a sports fan. I found baseball boring. I'm sorry to hear that, Alex. He's a bunch of guys just kind of running around. I find rock boring. Just a bunch of guys running around. <laughs> <laughs> I find rock boring, too. It's very there. boring. It goes on and on. It's like they all look alike. <laughs> no, but no, I've never been able to. Um, the only time I ever enjoyed baseball was when I watched it from a skybox at the Astrodome. And then it was, uh, there's a little private apartment up there. I hear that's really elegant. Yeah. And that was kind of a nice way to watch a game because you really didn't care about the game that much. Well, it's like any other game. You have to know about the game to appreciate it. I, I mean, I don't appreciate chess. And you know that I'm a friend of Bobby Fischer. I've never played chess. That's probably why you haven't played chess. Well, that's probably a friend why. of Bobby Fischer's, that's the last thing you want to do. No, he, you know, I'll tell you a funny thing about Bobby. Bobby wanted to teach me to play chess. I'm probably the only guy that says, oh, come on. You know, a ridiculous game for kids. And uh, so, so to me, a game, uh, and, and we, we tend to place values on those things, and, and, I, and that bothers me, that, that if, if, if you take putting value judgments on other people's entertainments. I, I, I really don't do that anymore. I, well, I don't put a value judgment on it. To me, uh, if I just don't enjoy it. Okay, fine. You know, I mean, That's I find it perfectly boring, legit. and I don't like beer. What's beer got to do with baseball? Well, I mean, you're supposed to go to the baseball game, drink some beer, <laughs> eat a hot dog. Well, now, come on. You're, you're you sure. You know you have to get with the aesthetic, Gene. Oh, no. You have to go all the way. Well, actually, I always associated baseball with Cracker Jack. Uh, really? Yeah. How's that? Oh, There's yeah. a lot of it is eaten at ballparks. Are they still selling Cracker Jacks? You better believe it. It's the biggest year they've had in their history was this Oh, well, I got to say, Gene, the toys in Cracker Jack 
have gotten kind of chintzy. Well, they've gotten very symbolic. I mean, the other day I was sitting out at the ballpark and I opened up this box of, uh, you know, the big family size, uh, ballpark size box of Cracker Jack. Which doesn't have any bigger prize than the small box. Oh, no, no. The prize is not bigger, but the peanuts, there are more of those lovely peanuts in it. You know, those little brown ones at the bottom with the stuff on it. Yeah. And, uh, I, I was, you know, I was, uh, going at the Cracker Jack waiting for the prize and it came. Of course, the prizes are now enclosed in envelopes and neatly sealed. Right. And uh, I eagerly ripped it open and it turns out to be a tiny plastic parking meter. Now, all I need is a parking meter. I mean, that's a very symbolic prize. I mean, uh, to me, a uh, parking meter, you can get little stop signs now, uh, things like uh, 25 mile speed zone. And uh, you know things that are meaningful to the average, uh, <laughs> the average Earth pop. They had little books for a while. Yes, they did. Cracker Jack. I wonder if anybody has a collection of Cracker. Well, I did. Uh, you know, for a while I was reading those on the air. I was the only guy that set those books to music. I was reading the books out of the Cracker Jack collection, and and I, I did them really dramatically. You know, tremendous. Uh, I had George Antile and Stockhausen, all these great the musicians behind me. Yeah, I remember when I was a kid, man. That was my great thrill. You always open the other end of the box first because that's where the toy was. Yeah. Also, if you if you ever, they don't, they do not put toys in breakfast cereal like they used to. I mean, you used to get some fantastic things. That's true, they like did, yeah, yeah. And you always used to buy it, and you always used to know, you used to open up the box upside down because that's where the toy was, right? And then people like Cheerios got smart and started putting them on the top. Mm. But can you remember digging your hand down through all the cornflakes and everything oh, trying absolutely. to find the prize? Listen, are you kidding? I had a P-38 stuck in my gullet for over two years before they got it out. It just went right down with the cherries and the cream. But uh, <laughs> seriously, though, Alex, uh, yeah, uh, have you noticed that the, the new trend among cereals? You know, that it's the it's the earthy trend. Right. Uh, it's the uh, it's the uh, Ewell uh, Gibbons eat a park bench. Yeah, you know, stalking the wild cranberry. Reminds me of wild hickory nuts. And uh, and it's now it, you go into the Gristides, you know, down in the village. I live down in the village. You know, it's very, it's a very earthy Gristides. We have an earthy Gristides. Very, I have a very mundane Gristides that I go to. Well, are you in the village? Yeah, well, I'm on Fourteenth Street. Yeah, well, that's that's up in Mundanesville. It's just getting there. See, I figure it this way. Uh, that you've got the franchise on the village. I got the franchise on 14th Street. Franklin's got the franchise on 42nd Street. Yeah, yeah. We're looking for somebody to pick up the franchise on 23rd. Well, John Nebel has got it on the uh, roughly uh, the 36th Street uh, up in that area. Uh, really? He's yeah, got up to about 50th Street. Yeah, you know all those uh, Chinese restaurants and all that up there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, we have to take out our territory. The rest of New York's is up up for grabs. Jerry Kretschmer just lost another election, so he's out. Yeah, I like Jerry. I do too. Yeah, you know Jerry produced the first show that I ever did in New York. Really, Jerry Crutchmer? Yeah, you know his. Uh, well, of course you know his his brother. Oh, the sure, I know Art. Yeah. what executive editor is Arthur Crutchmer. Arthur I do not Crutchmer. call him Art. Uh, but Jerry produced the first show that I ever did in New York, uh, a live stage show, and it was done at the Orpheum Theater on Second Avenue, and. Uh, what was that? The show was called Look, Charlie, A History of the Pratfall. 
and it was a real success. It was a terrific success. It was a review. And uh, we were down there for uh, a limited engagement. But the, the thing was only going to be for four weeks because that was all they could get the theater for. There was a new show coming in. And uh, we were there four weeks, sold out every night. It was a real big hit. And Jerry produced it, Jerry Kretschmer. Well, he's a really nice guy, and I hate to see that he's never been able to really hack it. But some guys just can't politically. I mean, Howard Samuels just... I like how he's saying. Well, I, think I really dig him. I think he'd be uh, he'd be a good uh, be a good governor. He's a, he's a, he's a nice man, and uh, but for some reason he can't win an election. Well, I think things have changed. Uh, see, I think these guys, both Samuels and Kretschmer, mm. could very well have won in the mid '60s. You know, things had they were running for the same office. Uh, yeah. Then that they were in for now, they would have won. I think. Yeah. But I think things have changed. I think that the that these uh, they're, they're kind of out of the how can I say it? They're kind of out of another era. Yeah. I think about 1970 there was a great change in America. Yeah. Why don't, why don't you, let's take, we have a call on the line. Our number is 541-8520. And I don't know what that change is. I'm just saying yeah. I think that's what happened. I, I'm, I, somebody was saying that in the, in the day of Watergate, they looked too political. Uh, maybe, maybe, I don't know. But I don't know. Yeah, hello. Oh, well, we haven't got on the phone yet. 541-8520 is our number if you want to talk to uh, Shep. Good morning. Hi. Yeah. Hi. Uh, Gene, I was wondering uh, about your opinion. Do you think that... Uh, uh, a campaign commercial, a minute spot for a national candidate, could be done on strictly satirical lines and make the point and yet uh, at the same time not uh, sort of be a disservice to the candidate by injecting humor into such a, a quote, important thing as a political campaign? Uh, boy, you're asking a good question, and it all depends on the skill and the talent of the people doing it. Yeah. Uh, satire, which is a very difficult art. Right. And uh, it's just like asking me, do you think a, a poster using watercolors can be successful? Yes, providing you have a John Marin or a great watercolorist. Yeah. See, let me tell you why I asked the question. I uh, was you see the point I'm making here. It is yeah. skill has everything to do with uh, satire. Yeah. Uh, the light hand is very important, and unfortunately, most people confuse satire with burlesque or polemic, right. which is a very different thing. Right. See, the reason I asked this is because I was a volunteer writer for McGovern uh, on the national uh, level. I. Uh, I, because I was a volunteer and I came in late into the into the campaign, only a few of my ideas were used. But I had visions uh, of the possibilities of getting into the uh, media section there, so that uh, perhaps I, if I could have some influence on the uh, campaign commercials they had. They had serious campaign commercials that were quite good, I thought. But uh, my, my idea of of a perfect campaign against someone such as Richard Nixon would have been to really show Nixon to be the kind of man that he obviously was. And uh, because the, the negative personality of Nixon really was more important than individual issues on that level. And they didn't really go into that. And no national campaign has. None of them have had the guts to, uh, to laugh right in the face of somebody who should, you know, well, you know, there's. A, I, I think the reason, then, uh, can you can easily uh, come up with good answers, but I think that a thing like that can easily rebound against you. Yeah. Uh, it's a very dangerous weapon. Uh, uh, satire, if it's applied 
in the general sense, uh, if, if, I, if I as a performer am not grinding my own axe, uh, I'm just out, let's say, satirizing as I do on the air or as I'm going to do, say, on the stage in Carnegie Hall, right. if I'm doing this. Uh, I'm obviously, uh, if I'm satirizing, let's say for argument's sake, I'm satirizing uh, what Johnny Carson will say. Uh -huh. uh, and I do a bit on, on Johnny Carson. It may be a savage <laughs> and cruel satire. Yeah. But if the audience begins to feel that why I'm doing this is because I want to take over his show, I'm grinding a personal axe, yeah. you're really in trouble. Yeah. So if McGovern satirizes Nixon, uh, it's it's a it's a in a sense a dangerous weapon because people are going to say well all right now let's do our McGovern satires now yeah and uh, he's he's doing it for a specific reason and it's personal and incidentally selfish he wouldn't want to get elected right uh, but now if you were to satirize Nixon with no idea of you becoming the president or your candidate becoming the president uh -huh. that's a totally different thing that's a pure satire yeah. But if you say, I'm satirizing Nixon because I want to be president, well, <laughs> then you're in trouble. Yeah. In other words, really, you, you can't quite picture, uh, uh, let's say, the Democratic National Committee hiring Stan Freeberg, let's say, to produce minute spots. Well, uh, I can imagine them doing it, but I can say then, that if the Republicans were smart, they'd come back and hire Shepard. Yeah, right. And, uh, <laughs> that's right. Uh, and I'm just, try I'm just trying to say to you that, the, that there's a two-edged sword. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, most... There's, a, there's another point to be made. And incidentally, I could do a much more savage satire on McGovern than I could on Nixon. Oh, sure. And you know why? Because McGovern's personality was much more abrasive and uh, more obvious. Now, I didn't like Nixon, and I don't like yeah. Nixon, but Nixon is such a zero, it's right. difficult to satirize zero. Yeah, yeah. Of course, the easiest way to do, to do McGovern was to, to compare him to Liberace because he did that. Oh, I would have satirized him by, by making him a political Oral Roberts. <laughs> That's the way I would have done McGovern. I could have destroyed him in five minutes <laughs> uh, with that tight-lipped, uh, righteous look, you know. <laughs> and he, he did go overboard, I guess. Thank you for calling. Thanks. It's a very interesting call. It was a really interesting call. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yeah, Bye-bye. Also, there's another point once made that the... Uh, Bob Hope could get up and do a joke about the president, and everybody would laugh. And the Smothers Brothers could do the same joke, and people would get mad. Well, uh, because Bob Hope does it, and I'm not a Bob Hope fan either, I might right. add. Bob Hope does it in a sense of fun, whereas the Smothers Brothers would do it with a, well, with a vague sense of... Uh, well, the attitude was, well, you guys mean it. Uh... You're not just you're not just kidding around. You guys mean it. Yeah, possibly, but I didn't think they were very good at it either. Unfortunately, yeah. uh, again, a lot has to do with how how talented the person is who does it. Yeah. Uh, that 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 I thought the Smothers Brothers made that vague switch. Let's say uh, they, they moved over that slight millimeter from from being amusing and funny and devastating to being preachy. <laughs> and that that's death. It really is. Uh, they're heavy-handed, in other words. Okay. It's like a great act. <laughs> Gene Shepard is my guest. And we were... Uh, the guy come out and writhe on the stage, and somebody else comes out and gives him an Anison or whatever. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> we were talking about... Uh, about um, while the music was going, about, about the satirists should have no... Uh, nobody's sacred, you know, well, including right. those who they a may truly, believe in. A truly, truly great satirist uh, is not that they don't believe in anything. Uh, that 
shouldn't be uh, misunderstood. But they recognize a, a guy like, say, Swift or, or a, a really great satirist, like, say, somebody like, uh, oh, uh, well, I could say probably Ambrose Pierce. Mm -hmm. uh, people like this were, were really basically uh, loners and iconoclasts, and they did not commit themselves uh, to a, a particular cant. Yeah. In other words, they just say, I am a blank, and put a big button on him, and the blanks can do no wrong. Uh, I am after the wise who are right. evil. Right. Uh, see, that's a polemicist. That's something else. Uh, he, he merely said that the right is no funnier than the left. <laughs> and that would offend the Pfeiffer, you see. That, that, that idea would offend the, a, a, a person today who, who believes he's a satirist by always attacking the other side or another group. Uh, that a satirist is often run out of town by both groups. <laughs> and, and in fact, a good satirist is always run out he of town be. by both groups. Yes, be. he is not liked by the left nor the right. right. And I, I've often felt very pleased at the end of a show to find that, uh, that I will get 50 letters denouncing me as a rock-bound conservative in one, uh, you know, one pile out of the same show. Mm -hmm. And the same show will get 50 letters denouncing me as an obvious uh, wild-eyed red. A radical type, and so I know that that, uh, that that you can't that nobody has a stranglehold nor a a uh, monopoly on stupidity uh, and also bullheadedness, ego. Transitionist, maybe. yeah. Of course, it's not. There was a time when I put Jane down. I don't put her down that much any longer because I think she's mellowed out. Well, I mean, she's out of the '60s anyway. Well, that's years ago. When, when she was, uh, when, when she was politicking, yeah. uh, when she first got her politics, uh, people who are, are nouveau anything are always very, um, very much an advocate, very much, and sometimes get very outlandish. You know, I mean. Uh, uh, when I first became politically radical, everything was right on, right? Because I had to really reinforce it. <laughs> and then after a while, it just kind of mellowed out. You know, sure, well, it's that's not how I feel about things, but I don't have to. But I don't, I don't think everybody. it's a matter of mellowing out. Uh, that that. No, well, that's so much mellowing. I'm, I'm talking about mellowing out so far as having to prove it to anybody else. Yeah, and also yeah. too, you you as you as you grow more sophisticated, yeah, uh, you tend to see a lot of things which you did not see when you were not very sophisticated. It's just like, you know, uh, when you're 10 years old. And you go into the McDonald's, uh, the Big Mac is a fantastic experience. Well, after you've had maybe 20 or 30 Big Macs. Two or three, actually. All right. I mean, over the years, then the next thing you know, you're, you're, you find yourself... Uh, At Burger King. Yeah. You know, you're beginning to move up the scale, and uh, one day you find yourself with a, uh, with a really elegant uh, whitefish sandwich on Russian bread. Uh, you begin to see open, opening up uh, windows, and the mm -hmm. next thing you know, your, your violent advocacy of something seems to have mellowed, but actually you see a, a few more facets of it. Now, I, I've, I've felt a lot of friends of mine, and this has always uh, kind of saddened me, uh, will be tied into a specific political time. And they can't get out of it. I, I guess a lot of people miss the Vietnam War because this gave them a whole spine of their life. I mean, it was a tremendous thing. Uh, I noticed a lot of people suddenly became very happy the other day when Watergate apparently, you know, apparently was coming back in again. <laughs> and oh boy, they, 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 <laughs> Tom Wicker's columns all of a sudden started to glow again. It was a tremendous. And I and I say that it, it reminds me all through my life. There's always been people around me. Yeah. Uh, and I think most of us have known people like this who were fighting the same fights. I remember I had an uncle 
my, my this uncle of mine, no matter what happened, when he would come over to the house, we, he was uh, my brother's, uh, my father's brother, and he would come over to the house. And sure enough, within ten minutes after he's there, he starts. Uh, he was a violent union man. Yeah. And and this was years after all, uh, you know, the depression and all that kind of stuff, you know, that which he lived through. That that uh, he was still talking about the depression when he died in 1968, and that's all he ever talked about. Oh. But to him, it was still alive. Yeah. Yeah. And now I know another fellow who's like that, a friend of mine who's a writer. He is so in that period that he sees everything around him today through those eyes. And, and, and that's Studs Terkel, an old friend of mine. Studs sees everything in terms of the time when he was growing up, which is the Depression and all. And he, he will not see it any other way. Uh, he, he, he just doesn't recognize the fact that all those... Uh, all those uh, uh, Winnebago's that are going by are, are all owned by downtrodden workers. And uh, all those cabins up in Maine are owned by guys from the assembly line right. at Ford. And he just wants to think there's still a bread line. Yeah. And, and he loves to think that. And, and he cannot get out of it. And and I, I hate to see that happen to people. In other words, they get they get based in the time, and they don't know that they are based in the time. I, I think already it's happening. You see it on, on uh, television today. You see already people are beginning to talk about uh, uh, nostalgia of the 60s. Uh, suddenly, uh, that's... Uh, yeah, well, when, uh, well, first they started talking about nostalgia of the 50s, which made me feel bad enough, because their nostalgia was my, my young years, right? And now they're doing nostalgia of the 60s, and that was part of when I was growing up. You know, when I was in the, in my twenties, I really you really feel old when they start doing nostalgia about something that once was very serious. To you. Well, uh, nostalgia has no meaning at all anymore. See, I think uh, uh, that word nostalgia is used so often now. To I hope Joe isn't misused. Well, Joe laughs at it, but it's <laughs> see, the true nostalgia is is the glorification of a time that you never knew, and. Uh, that's nostalgia. Yeah, but to the kids who are uh, using the, the 50s as nostalgia, they weren't alive then. Well, that's what I mean. They're saying that that's yeah. true nostalgia, uh, but it wouldn't be for you uh, because you were alive at the time. Yeah. Uh, if, if, if you sat around, it's like Miniver Cheevy, a uh, great uh, poem. Miniver Cheevy ruled the day. He ruled that, that, that he was not born. I'm paraphrasing it here. He ruled the day that he, he'd sit up on a hilltop and, and, and dream of, of wearing chain mail and armor. And instead of having this nothing khaki, Miniver Cheevy ruled the time he was born. <laughs> and this is, a, this is a common problem. and it, It's always that way. And that's true nostalgia, and it's sad. Let's take another call. Yeah. Good morning. Uh, good morning, gentlemen. Uh, James? Yeah, hi. The idea that the uh, the eyes that Studs Terkel is looking through this country with are the right ones? I think oh, no, I think he's way off base. But anyway, that's not why I'm... And I've had a lot of arguments with him about it. I, I, uh, we are friends, and we've been friends for a long time. So I want to talk about a former employer that you and he both had in common, and that is... Uh, Public Broadcasting Service. Oh, I never worked for them. I was. They you were, were an indirect employee. You were with GBH, right? No, I wasn't with any of those. I. Uh, uh, Do I not remember a series called Gene Shepard? But that didn't mean I was employed by them. <laughs> Heavens no. Uh, my show that I did on the, that was broadcast on PBS was funded by the Ford Foundation, and was an independent production. I did not work for WGBH nor PBS. I hope that clears up your. Oh, because I always saw the. 
their logo. Well, they, they, they were the, the production agency. They provided the uh, technicians in that, but uh, they were not, I was not an employee of them. Well, something confused me about what you said earlier. You were talking about the, the less visual... Wait a minute. What were you going to say about PBS? Let's uh, figure that one... Well, no, this is, I'm talking about it now. Oh. Um, something confused me. You, know, you said earlier that you, by necessity, had to employ a less visual style when you were on your radio show, and that you became, and you could become more visual on the stage. I do, uh, but don't don't think of my television show in connection with that. You see, right, that's what I wanted to ask about. I have a very uh, strong memory of your voice telling a story while the camera is focusing on railroad tracks. That's correct. You know, I don't understand what what type of techniques were you... Well, we were doing a very... Uh, see, obviously, you're used to the to the direct connection technique. In other words, if you're telling a story about a fish, you show a fish on the screen. Uh, and that's, uh, let's say, a fairly primitive technique. You, and, and that's usually mostly, you're mostly used in American television. If you tell a story about a bird, a bird flies across the screen. Uh, whereas, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, there is another kind of technique where you may be telling a story about a kite but actually, what you're seeing is, let's say, uh, uh, water rolling in on a beach, in which case your mind should see the kite. And uh, the water uh, gives you a sense of space and, and uh, a tactile sense. Uh, this is a, this is a, a form of fil uh, film indirection that you see often in the works of Ingmar Bergman. Uh, but we don't do this much on television, which is a very direct medium here in America. In other words, if, if I say, and so there I stood before the blacksmith shop, and then the, you show a blacksmith shop, right? Uh, and I guess that's what confused you. I'm sorry. Okay, thank you for calling. Right. Bye-bye. <clears throat> Good morning. You're on the air. Hello, uh, Gene. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, I, I know you're an actor. You're a review performer. You're a licensed pilot. You're an accomplished artist. I don't say that. You said it. <laughs> I heard you on Long John. The other. Oh, that's... Uh, we were... Uh, you did that great uh, drawing of the Plaza Hotel. Yeah, what about it? Uh, nothing. I, I, did I, you enjoy that show with old John? I would like to see that. Uh, I'm sure it would be very, very well uh, done. Well, that drawing uh, was reproduced in, uh, in a book that... Uh, Alex has. It's called uh, The Ferrari in the Bedroom. You can get a copy of that. Oh, great. I, yeah, I didn't it would make Gene very happy. Yeah, yeah. Not me. It would make Dodd Mead happy. <laughs> and, uh, you're a man of many talents, you know. Uh, we all are if we decide to do it. I think most people are, are multi-talented if they actually yeah. start doing it, and most people don't. Well, uh, also, I was mentioning this the other night, that once you've ma somewhat mastered one form, a lot of the, all the other forms come a lot easier. That's true. Uh, you begin to see things in terms of composition. Well, you know, uh, Mr. Shepard, yeah. there's one thing about, uh, I remember one time I really looked forward to you appearing on the uh, Tonight Show. Yeah, Eddie and Kovacs I know, and you got host. very mad about Victor Borga and all that. No, I heard no, Eddie Kovacs was host. Oh, I didn't know. That's not true. Yeah, I remember you appearing with him, and he... But not on... That was on Ernie Kovacs' own show. I was never on... Oh, I'm sorry. I'm... Yeah. That was not on The Tonight Show. That was on... Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, memory is so faulty. But I remember... Yeah, I thought you two would get along very well together, and you didn't. Well, uh, because we were very similar performers. Yeah. That's like uh, Jerry Lewis would not get along well with Charlie Chaplin. 
No, I think it was far better than uh, Ernie Kovacs. It's like two women showing up wearing the same dress. Yeah. Yeah, yeah but I, I, thought, I thought you were far cleverer than he was, though, though he did have pretensions as a writer. Well, I, don't, I thought we got along well. We did personally, but I guess we didn't get along well on the screen. No, on the screen it didn't work out too well, but of course that's a long time ago. And, and I remember, uh, there's one another thing about, uh, I remember a, a, a few times you mentioned that you, you had a play coming up in the fall. No, I didn't mention that. One of my publishers did. Oh. And uh, rather than make it into a play, what I did was turn it into a novel. I, I, uh, I, at that time, uh, the Broadway, and as it is today, the Broadway theater is a, is in a shambles. It's, uh, uh, and it's a chancy thing. And uh, after you work three or four years on a piece of work, you don't want it to see, see it shot down in five minutes by Clive Barnes. <laughs> so, I imagine you could do some pretty good screenplays, though. Yeah, well, I've, I've, I've done some screenwriting. I, I used to do a lot of screenwriting for a, uh, a producer named uh, de Rochemont. Uh, I did some work for the de Rochemont group. And, uh, he was a documentary. No, he did a lot of stuff other than documentaries. Ah. He did The House on 92nd Street. Uh, yeah, that was an excellent film. He did uh, Lost Boundaries, uh, a lot of things. He, okay, listen, we got to go. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Right, I would like to say that Gene Shepard is going to be appearing at Carnegie Hall Saturday night. Saturday night. Are there still some tickets available? Well, according, there we always uh, put some aside. In fact, uh, we had a bad situation happen a couple of years ago where a lot of people drove in from places like Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and this place was sold out, and there they were. You know, they had a, a drive, and uh, they were bugged, and they were milling around out there, and I got a lot of angry letters. I had nothing to do with it, you know, people saying, I drove all the way from Washington, Pennsylvania, and with my family, and we couldn't get tickets. What's this? So we always, uh, now, the uh, people at the uh, Carnegie Hall box office, they lay aside a block of seats always now that are sold the night of the performance mm -hmm. and that's done even if people write in and, and ask for them they don't get them okay so there are i guess tickets there available. will be tickets yes uh for gene's appearance at carnegie hall eight o'clock yeah eight i want you to there. come some night i would love to i don't know if i can this friday this saturday night i really wish you would some night yeah because, uh, you know, I, I only do one uh, live performance in New York a year. This is the thing I, I point yeah. at. There's not many good halls to work in here in this town, oddly enough. And uh, nightclubs are kind of uh, sporadic and spotty these days. And uh, so I do one big performance a year here. Most of my performing today is done in colleges, out. I play colleges all over the country. And curious uh, shows, like uh, a couple months ago I did a show for... The Chrysler Executive Club. That's an elegant group. And uh, I, I, I take the bull right by the horns, you know. I, I just had to do it. Here we are. Here, here's 700 Chrysler executives from the Chrysler Corporation. <laughs> the baddies, you know. You know I got to get going here to a newscast, Gene, but that's Saturday. Gene, yeah. come back, will you? I love I'd love to, here. Alex. And I love talking with you. You're one of the few guys in town that I that I know in, in, uh, in the media that I feel a real... Uh, I hate to say it, such a corny word, but a sense of rapport and kinship. <laughs> no, really, you're. you're, you're nice you're, well, it's a it's a it's a kind of communication that you don't see often in the media. I've I've been with a lot of other guys, you know, who are, I should have a lot in common with, but I find I have nothing in, in common. With. He he made that point, uh, Ernie. Yeah, Ernie Kovacs. Gene, I got to go to a newscaster. I'm not going to have very much rapport.